Generations Church exists to glorify God in our community, to make disciples of Jesus, and to multiply churches so that the next generation is equipped to glorify God better than we did. Welcome to the Generations Church Podcast. We are in our series called Guilt, Grace, and Gratitude, exploring the themes and modern-day connections of the Heidelberg Catechism. Hello, everybody. My name is Scotty Hines, one of the pastors here at Generations Church, and alongside of me is my good friend, Pastor Jeff Ludington, lead pastor at Generations Church. Jeff, how are you, my friend? I am well, man. I'm good. well. I'm living through the quarantine. I'm living through these hey. days. Hey, man, what better way to live through the quarantine than studying communion, right? <laughs> I mean, right. communion is pretty much a self-examination. We've been given all this time. It's as if God said, hey, y'all haven't rested, so I'm going to give you 70 days of rest. <laughs> and uh, anyhow, I think of that. Yeah, I, I think of the know, captivity. Man, is that prophetic? Was that a prophecy ah. right there? Were you saying it's going to be 70 days? Is it going to be hey, all 10 I'm, times the holy number of God? Hey, man, all I'm saying <laughs> is Jeremiah gave us an example, right? And Daniel said, hey, I'm reading it 70 days or 70 years. I just kind of chopped off the years and 70 days. <laughs> all right. I couldn't all do right, 70 so years of this. <laughs> so if you're listening right now, uh, please don't take us seriously about that. We're not uh, prophesying 70 days nor are we heretically applying Jeremiah to our lives, okay? So here we are. We are in the Heidelberg Catechism. As Pastor Scott said, we're doing a series called Guilt, Grace, and Gratitude. This is the 30th episode. We did an intro and then 30 episodes. And what we're doing is we're exploring, as Pastor Scott said, the themes and modern-day connections of the Heidelberg Catechism. If you've never heard this before, the Heidelberg is a 450-year-old catechism, a way of learning by memorizing questions and answers. It's a process of discipleship, if you will. It's been done for century after century after century, generation after generation, and we're in the middle of it. In fact, there's 52 episodes or 52 what they call Lord's Days, and we are in episode 30. And so we are just over the middle point and uh, headed to the back, if you will, uh, today, we are in the third episode about communion, and so we broke these up uh, by looking at the spiritual implications of communion. That was the first episode. Then the second one, yeah. the physical implications. What <clears throat> happens to the bread and to the cup, or does something happen to the bread and the cup? That was the last episode, number 29, and today, we're going to look a bit at contrast. What do we believe versus what do others believe? We'll talk about a Roman Catholic belief. We'll talk about some different things. And then we're going to wrap up today's episode with who should take communion. And so if you are a fan of the Heidelberg Catechism, this is Lord's Day 30, questions 80, 81, and 82. If you're brand new to this, just take a listen. And here's what we're talking about in communion is what do we believe about it? And what do others believe about it? And then really, who is communion for? Sound good, Scott? Sounds great, man. I love it. This gives clarity. So that's always... a um always a good thing. Well, good. Uh, the catechism works like this. It is a question and answer system. It's memorization. And so I'm going to ask the question. Pastor Scott is going to answer it. And then we're going to discuss it a bit, kind of uh, like we would on a Sunday. We read a little bit. We just, you know, kind of interpret a little bit. We're going to read a little bit. We apply it a little bit. Same kind of idea, except there's two of us and we are staring at each other over video because we're still self-isolating and, and uh, staying at home to be safer. All right? Right. We're zoom-zooming it. Zoom, zoom, zoom. There we go. So question there we go. 80, how? No, that's just, sorry. Okay, question 80. We'll take this a little more seriously. How Hopefully. does the Lord's Supper differ 
from a Roman Catholic Mass. The Lord's, Supper, the Lord's Supper declares to us all that our sins are completely forgiven through the one sacrifice of Jesus Christ, which he himself accomplished on the cross once for all. It also declares to us that the Holy Spirit grafts us into Christ, who with his true body is now in heaven at the right hand of the Father, where he wants us to worship him. But the Mass teaches that the living and the dead do not have their sins forgiven through the sufferings of Christ unless Christ is still offered for them daily by the priest. It also teaches that Christ, that Christ is bodily present under the form of bread and wine, where Christ is therefore to be worshipped. Thus, the Mass is basically nothing but a denial of the one sacrifice and suffering of Jesus Christ and a condemnable adultery. Sorry, the slanted word got me a little. <laughs> so uh, here... So here's what the question is asking. Okay, so in a Protestant church, and let me, in yeah. fact, let me pause. Let me back up. So the Heidelberg Catechism is a 450-year-old catechism, a 450-year-old discipleship process, right? Well, what happened 450 years ago was that the church had just gone through a major, major overhaul. And so Christians, 2,000 years ago at the ascension of Jesus, birthed the church, right? Uh, Jesus birthed the church through them, right? And starts in Jerusalem. It spreads to Judea and Samaria, and then to the ends of the earth, as Jesus says in Acts 1. Then we see that through Acts, we see them live that out, right? We see them take the message of the gospel out. Well, that's good for about a thousand years, all right? And about the thousand year mark, or just before it, we have a big east-west split. And so if you've heard of people that are Orthodox or Greek Orthodox, Russian Orthodox, uh, other kind of Orthodox traditions, that's the Eastern Church. And then the Western Church eventually becomes the Roman Catholic Church. And so uh, Catholic means universal. Uh, oddly enough, Roman universal is kind of a contradiction in terms, but they become what we typically call Catholics, Roman Catholics. Well, 500 years goes by and there are so many problems within the Roman Catholic Church that people are calling for it to be reformed, right? It to be fixed. And they're protesting the problems inside of the Catholic Church. Now, to be fair to Roman Catholics that are alive today, even they look back at that era 500 years ago, yeah, it was pretty messy, okay? So what happens are some Christians, some leaders, some Catholics actually rise up from amongst the Roman Catholic Church and they call for reforms and they protest the product problems. And that's where we get the words pro, uh, uh, Protestant Reformation. They're protesting, and what they really want to do is fix it. They want to reform it. But at that time, the Pope at that time and the others are not willing to fix the problems. And this is one of them. Now, there were some other grieve, uh, some grievous sins. They were, uh, you know, paying for people there, uh, to have their sins forgiven after they had died. People were charging money for that. I mean, just some very grievous sins. There were yeah. some prostitution amongst priests. I mean, there's all kinds of problems, right? Huge issues. But there were also theological issues, and this is one of them. What does it mean to take communion? And so episode 30, we're asking this question, how does the Lord's Supper differ from a Roman Catholic Mass? Right? That's our question. And you rightly said, that the Lord's Supper declares to us that all our sins are completely forgiven through the one sacrifice of Jesus Christ. Okay, so let's start with this. What do Roman Catholics believe about communion? They believe that it's called transubstantiation, right? That, uh, and if you're taking notes at home, trans means change. And I, this is a terrible, 
terrible image, but transgender, transition, trans whatever, right? Transfer. That means change, right? Transubstantiation, substantiation, substance. Change, substance, right? So it is the process of the host, the bread and the cup, changing substance. So they're saying that the bread becomes Christ's body in substance, not an image, but in physical body, correct? They, they, it becomes his physical body in substance only, not an image. It doesn't turn into flesh, but in substance, Got you. it becomes his body. And the cup in substance remains wine, but changes into his blood. Trans substance, change substance into Christ's body and blood. Now, the reason that the Protestant Reformation pushed back on this is what that means. If you just follow this out logically, If every time we do communion, we change the bread into Christ's actual physical body, and we change the blood into his actual physical blood, what we're doing is we're shedding his blood and breaking his body again and again and again and again and again, right? And so now multiply that out by every church in America times every time they've done communion over the last 2,000 years, right? That's how many times Christ would be broken and bled and died again and again and again. And so this question is saying, how does it differ? Well, in the Protestant church, what we are saying is that Jesus died once for sin, right? So that's part of the answer, that through one sacrifice of Jesus Christ, which we, he himself accomplished on the cross once for all. Okay, so his death, his broken body, his shed blood took place once. We celebrate it, as we talked about in the last episode last week, as a memorial. We celebrate it as a remembrance. We celebrate it, as we talked about two weeks ago, as a means of grace, something that strengthens us. It builds us up spiritually. But when we do it, the elements, the bread and the cup, don't change. Right? They don't become his body. So the second part of that answer says the Mass teaches that the living and the dead do not have their sins forgiven through the suffering of Christ, unless Christ is still offered for them daily by the priest. It also teaches that Christ is bodily present under the form of the bread and the wine, where Christ is therefore to be worshipped. So let me pause there. If you've ever been Roman Catholic, they will take the host, they will take the bread, and they will pray over it, use the words of institution, go through their liturgy, and then they will place some of it, and they will place it up on a golden uh, kind of a pole with a glass, like an orb, and they will put it in there, and they will put it in front of the, the, the church, and the church can come in and pray before it. And they literally have the bread of communion on uh, under observation right there, and you can come and pray in the presence of Jesus because the bread's there. And so you've got to understand here that what is changing here isn't just a, a definition of terms or something but really an understanding of when Jesus died, was it good enough? Was his death good enough once for all? And is he bodily present in the communion, in the Eucharist, in the host, right? In the bread or the cup. And so if you go, and if you're Roman Catholic and you go pray in front of the observation of communion bread, as if you're in the presence of Jesus then, then what are, are you in the presence of Jesus at other times? You know what I mean? Yeah. No, absolutely. Yeah, it would definitely, um, you know, the Bible talks, first off, he talks about it's better that he goes away. Right. That way right. the helper 
you know, if we just go to his teachings alone, he, he implies that he's bouncing and that his, he's going to send a helper. It's actually the necessity he leaves right. so the helper would be uh, sent to us. Um, and then it's the helper who leads and guides us in all truth, who convicts us of sin, right. uh, which is his spirit. And so, yeah, it, it would definitely, you know, it would definitely have a lot. It would, it would shift a lot of teaching to really yeah. think that he's only present at that, uh, that moment of Eucharist. Um, with the priest yeah. um, and, and the communion because there's a lot of there's a lot of gymnastics you got to do there you know uh, yeah, hebrews he sacrifices once and for all um and it's very clear too when you go to hebrews he's very very clear that that one sacrifice was sufficient right once he even yeah. says he even says um should we crucify the lord over and over and over again right I remember in Bible college, I wrote a stupid paper. It was horrible. A Christian year. And I just put, I put, imagine if that was the process, we'd have no cows left to eat. Like, oh, Lord. <laughs> That's funny. I was referring to how much sin we have, but. Uh, yeah, right. Anyhow. Um, so this yeah, is, man. And that's a, that's a really good explanation. And I think really quick, for those who are listening, Jeff, Pastor Jeff and I, our goal is clarity over agreement. You may be a Roman Catholic and you may hear what we're saying. In all our job, we really want you to be clear. If you're not going to agree with us, be at least clear of why we believe what we believe and why we sure. take the approach uh, towards the Catholic Mass uh, or why we have such views towards the Catholic Mass. It's because what we believe in Jesus, that he is sufficient and his death was once and for all. And so um, I hope me, that's getting across. Yeah, and, and I appreciate that. So we're not trying to knock Roman Catholics. We're not trying to knock. What we're, we're, we're trying to do is distinguish belief, right? And so it's, I'm going to take us out of communion for just a second. But. When people say, uh, you know, they profess their belief, oh, God is love. Okay, so if you believe God is love, right? And I'm not saying he's not loving, and I'm not saying he isn't, uh, he doesn't love us. I'm saying if that's what you believe is the one true, most driving characteristic trait about God, then it becomes very hard to understand um, discipline, judgment, hell, things like that, right? It becomes, well, if God is loving, he just should rescue everybody. Okay, well, that's another conversation for another day. But if we believe that the, that the, the, the ultimate trait about God as he reveals himself is holiness, well, that shapes a very different belief and it, and it helps us understand different things. So what you believe matters. It's not just a definition of terms. So if you believe that the bread and the cup become Christ's body and blood, the implication of that means Christ must be broken and, and crucified over and over again. And if you believe that, then that necessary, necessarily means you must believe that his one death, his one sacrifice on the cross was not enough. And if you believe that the, the bread becomes his body and you can go worship in the presence of his physical body, then you must misunderstand the statements that he makes like when two or more are gathered, there I am in the midst of you, right? So the presence of Christ exists now spiritually for all. His human body was crucified. His human body even ascended, but his spiritual presence is here for all of us. And so understanding theology matters. Absolutely. So, well, it says too that he's seated at the right hand of the Father. Right. That's where his physical no... body is. And there's no implication right. for him to leave that. Even, even when you can get to the one passage we can find in Acts, it just says he stands to receive uh, Stephen. It doesn't right. say he leaves his throne. That's good. Um, which I think is a reference towards uh, martyrdom. Like, like yeah. his martyr, even the martyrs in the book of Revelation, how they are just given this special 
I don't call them privilege, anything of that nature, but honor. Man, they get a special word. Yeah. <laughs> acknowledgement. So, they get a special acknowledgement. So take your example. That's really good. So if Jesus must be re-crucified at the at the in the Roman Catholic Mass, then how can he remain on the throne, physically remain on the throne, right? Like there's what we believe matters, and each thing that we believe has implications, right? If yes. we believe that the best thing for me to do today is satisfy any needs that I have or any desires that I have, I will go out and, you know, I'd be, you know, I'd be hard, you know, I'd be ruin my marriage. I would ruin my, you know, my income. I would do, I would do all these things because if my controlling belief is, hey, whatever I want, I'm going to go do it. Well, that's going to have negative implications tomorrow, right? But if I believe uh, that tomorrow will be here, then I will act differently today. So every belief we have Absolutely. has implications. Even take it really quick, I know I got two quick questions, but I just want to share this. Like, even if you, you believe, let's just say Jesus is not born of a virgin, you can believe that. But as you learn scripture, you, your theology will crumble because you will learn he is not the, uh, the perfect sacrifice to cover your right. sins. And so just little minute things like that yeah. just grenade your theology. So it's very important. Don't just regurgitate. Know what you believe and know what you're sure. saying. Yeah. Yeah. You can believe whatever you want, but understand this. It doesn't all line up with scripture and what you believe has implications on other things. Absolutely. Virgin birth. That means that Jesus would have an inheritance of sin. Right. If mm -hmm. he didn't have a virgin birth, he would have the inheritance of a sinful father. Right. Well, he doesn't. So he can be our perfect sacrifice. That's a great example. Good job, all right. Brother. So I want to look at these last two questions really quick. And so I'll okay. ask the question. Pastor Scott will answer. 81. Who should come to the Lord's table? Those who are displeased with themselves because of their sin, but who nevertheless trust that their sins are pardoned and that their remaining weakness is covered by the suffering and death of Christ, and who also desires more and more to strengthen their faith and lead a better life. Hypocrites and those who are unrepentant, however, eat and drink judgment on themselves. Ooh, all right. We'll yeah. cover that in a minute. Question 82. Should those be admitted to the Lord's Supper who show by what they profess and how they live that they are unbelieving and ungodly? No, that would dishonor God's covenant and bring down God's wrath upon the entire congregation. Therefore, according to the instructions of Christ and his apostle, the Christian church, church's duty bound to exclude such people by the official use of the keys of the kingdom until they reform their lives. That's some heavy accountability right there, man. It is, man. Let me just say this. As modern-day 21st century evangelical Christians, this stuff rubs you wrong, right? And <laughs> Here's what it is, man. You think of uh, whatever. Well, I don't know what everybody thinks of, but when you hear who should come to the Lord's table, those who are displeased with themselves because of their sins, but those who trust in Jesus, right? And then it goes to that's that's you self-identifying, and there's a lot of self-identifying in our culture going on right now. If I want to self-identify as a particular gender or something else, culture is accepting of that, right? In fact, it pushes back against people that don't accept their self-identification. Granted, sure. I'm not saying that's okay. I'm saying that's true of our culture today. However, the set, that question 82, the second one we just did, should those be admitted to the Lord's Supper? That means should I identify you as able to come to the Lord's table, right? So there's two facets here. In a church service where the word is being preached and, and, and worship is being, uh, and worship songs of worship are being sung, we're gathered together and we serve communion. And then this is called, uh, people throughout history have called this fencing the table and just and it's not putting a it, it well it is it is it's putting a fence around it to keep people out right 
And people just, you hear that and you're like, whoa, everybody should be able to celebrate this. Well, yes, everybody should be able to, but not everybody is able to, right? First Corinthians 11, we read that a couple of weeks ago, talked about eating and drinking judgment on ourselves. So in other words, here comes the Christian who is, uh, who is, you know, has fallen in love with Jesus, but is also living in the world. And maybe they're, you know, um, they're living with somebody and they're not married, or maybe they're, you know, they're strung out on alcohol or something and they're just, and they're sinful and they know they're sinful, but they're not doing anything to change it. Should they come to the Lord's table? Well, there's two questions being asked. Should they themselves identify themselves as unrepentant? Yes. But what if they yeah. don't? Should the church, should the pastors, the elders, should the leadership of the church not stop them and help them and point out their need for repentance before they come to the Lord's table and eat and drink judgment on themselves. So you have to understand if two, two episodes ago, when we talked about a spiritual benefit, there's also a spiritual cur or a spiritual deficit, a spiritual negative. If you don't do communion rightly, you eat and drink judgment on yourselves and you don't have to trust us. You don't have to trust, trust uh, the Heidelberg catechism. Go read first Corinthians 11, 26 to 32. Like it says those words, eat and drink judgment on yourselves. But then it gives the authority, the spiritual accountability to the leadership of the church to go to them. And, and it's not for the purpose of excluding them. It's for the purpose of calling them to repentance so that they don't eat and drink judgment on themselves. And so I'll, I'll wrap with this. Who should come to the table if you are a follower of Jesus if you are willing to admit your sin, as we all have sin, right? All of us Absolutely. are sinful. If you want to come to the table and you want to come in repentance, you believe that Jesus died for you and you desire to, as the Heidelberg Catechism says, lead a better life. In other words, repent of known sin, right? Then we want you to be there. But if you're not a follower of Jesus, this is a meal for believers. This is a celebration for believers only. And if you're a believer, but you're not willing to repent of sin, you should abstain from communion so that, and according to the words of Scripture, you don't eat and drink judgment on yourselves, right? The church should be bound by responsibility to its members to Absolutely. teach them this and then walk with them. Now, I, I, I'll give you a pastor. I know we're running a little late on this episode. So here's what I'll say. I have only excluded one person from communion once in almost two de decades of ministry. And I'll say this, for the first several years, I probably didn't know any better. By the time I learned, I was in the ministry several years, and I remember one particular person who chose to divorce his wife for no reason that was biblically allowable. He just decided he liked somebody else and he wanted to go be with somebody else. So he left his wife and several kids behind, and he went and started dating this woman. Well, this grenade happened. I was pastoring a church with three services at the time. And the kids and the mom, they all came in the morning. Well, a few months later, he started coming at night with the new girlfriend. They weren't divorced. He was sleeping with this other woman, living with this other woman. And as he went to, I saw him take communion one Sunday and I pulled him aside afterwards. And I said, hey, listen, man, until you are repentant, you can't take communion, man. This is for your good, for your repentance. And this is, and I, and I walked him through, through 1 Corinthians 11. Now our culture doesn't like that. Our culture doesn't like me telling you you're in sin or not in sin. But this is really the word of God saying something. And I just, I want it, I want that to be heard, man, that the church does have a responsibility to people. But we okay. also have to know that we are sinful. Are we willing? Am I as a pastor? 
willing to repent of known sin in my life. I must be, or I can't take communion. And I need to self-identify first. And then if I am in sin and I don't see it or I'm ignoring it, the elders of the church need to come to me and out of love tell me, hey, you need to stop. Does that make sense? Makes a lot of sense, man. And it uh, leads me uh, to this verse in Ecclesiastics. As you're listening to the saints, non-believers, as you're listening to this, uh, know this. When you come to God, look what Ecclesiastics 5, 1 through 2 says. I love this. Guard your steps when you come to the house of God. To draw near, to, to listen is better than to offer sacrifice of fools, for they do not know that they are doing evil. I like this part. Be not rash with your mouth, nor let your heart be hastily to utter a word before God. For God is in heaven and you are on earth. Therefore, let your words be true. I just share that because mm. sometimes we just need to be reminded of who God is, man. And when we take the communion table, we can be humbled that this God is reaching down, desiring communion with us. Let's be humbled by that. Be humbled by that practice and enjoy communion for what it is. For you, the believer, a moment of repentance to give thankfulness for the forgiveness of sin. And for you who are lost in coming to know Christ, you get to enjoy the beautiful, blessed salvation that he offers as a free gift. I hope you were encouraged today. I just want to say again, from the bottom of our hearts, thank you for listening to the Generations Church Podcast. We release an episode every Tuesday. We are in our series, Guilt, Grace, and Gratitude. So please, please, subscribe. And we would love it if you wrote a review. We'd love to hear what you're learning, what you're thinking. And if you can, share it. Spread the good news. That's the goal of the gospel. Hope you all were blessed. Thank you so much again. Take care. For more information, visit our website at ginfamily.church. G-E-N family.church. You can also follow our social media accounts at ginfamilychurch.com.